Hi everyone! If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. started now you get to do it um and you're here with um <laughs> this is actually in the podcast though we are recording so uh it will it will go in um patrick uh i'm trevor uh thanks for having me on your show oh thank you for having me on your show as well um, yeah, no it's it's nice it's nice that we both have the show um, very excited to talk about the 2017 kansas city royals um, oh me too i think i i think those are wait i wrote about the 2003 17. Yeah, no, it's it's your essay. Was it 17? That was my essay. Oh, I did yeah. my research. I read I read up. I'm I'm ready to wow. go. I'm, I'm, I'm got all sorts of for you. Chesler uh, Cuthbert facts to share. <laughs> I got some Chesler Cuthbert, Cuthbert facts. Uh, mainly that I didn't know who he was the year that he came in, and then I thought he was going to be good the next year, and he, he wasn't really all that great. No, no, he sure wasn't. Uh, yeah, we all thought he was like the next Ben Zobrist for a while there. Um, and now everyone's wondering if this is a baseball podcast, but you have quit baseball. You don't, you're not a fan anymore. I've given up on baseball. Yeah. Uh, because for a while you were a Mariners fan. Is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm still a Mariners fan in the sense that, you know, scars don't go away. Um, <laughs> it's, it's shaped me even if I don't choose to identify as such. Fair um, um, and I mean, you still live in the area, so. I do. Yeah. Uh, were they to put together a contender, would you watch it? I mean, no, but it's kind of hard. I mean, I, I have kids. You have kids. We all have kids. One sec. One sec. I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of which. Yeah. Tell what's up. In, in case you were wondering, uh, Tilly really wishes it was Christmas. Well, I mean. Yeah. Who, could, who can blame her? So you're Patrick Dubuque. You are here talking with me. Um, t- tell us a little bit about your history. Where do you, where do you come from? Where, where do you go? That, that's incredibly broad. Um, I, I am a 41 year old man. I, uh, ah, very uh nice. I was, I spent eight years, eight and a half years writing about baseball. And then I decided that, um, I have enough cognitive dissonance in my life. Um, and gave it up. And now I uh, occasionally write about video games for you, and it's going really well. Yeah, I agree. 
honestly, it's been it's been fantastic. Um, it's been nice having uh, someone I know can write, uh, unlike myself, um, on the blog. Uh, you actually edited some of my favorite stuff that I wrote on Baseball Prospectus in short relief. Um, you also made a book for all of us, which is among the nicer things that anyone's ever done. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a it was a real pleasure to to have someone who had been like an editor and a, a writer that I admired come on. So, yeah, I, I hope everyone's enjoying it. I, I assume they are. All right, I hope so too. In the meantime, I, you know, I don't actually know what I'm doing. And oh, I mean, it's very weird to jump into a medium that I know really well. Like <laughs> I've played games my whole life, but I don't actually have time for anything. Right. Ever. Sure. Um, which means that while I was furiously faking like I knew anything about baseball and not actually watching baseball, <laughs> I know for how years, that goes. Yeah, that's an exciting. That's an exciting <laughs> juggling. Uh, act, especially if you start knowing, which is what I did, start knowing about baseball, start from knowing about baseball, excuse me, and then um, slowly over time you can't watch it anymore, and then, <laughs> then you're just like, oh boy, I, I, know, I know enough that I know I don't know anything at this point. Right, and my secret was always that I didn't actually watch baseball at all. I just would read a book, and then I would say, how do I take this book and make it baseball adjacent? Yeah, I mean... And come up with a point. And that worked really well until I no longer had time to read books. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the that's the trick, right? You have to be able to uh, spend some time reading books too, which I, I feel like, and this is a, this is a pretty uh, it's a pretty controversial position. I feel like um, it's actually easier to watch baseball than read books. Uh, somehow it takes up less time, but uh, I can't prove that at this point. Yeah, basically, my baseball content was. Uh, was listening to it while reading, <laughs> which um, maybe the lowest possible form. Something always um, happened, though. I mean, that's a. <laughs> but yeah, in, in terms of gaming, I um, you know I like to write, but I actually haven't really read any of what anyone else has said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and so there is the capital discourse um, that I'm still kind of trying to figure out what it is or where it is, except for the parts that I'm. Uh, painfully aware of where it is. You know, I think, Uh I think that's interesting though, because it's, it's something that I've experienced as well. uh, And I feel like a lot of people writing about video games haven't is that there's this, there's this nature of game writing or games writing that um, basically you're, you're sort of writing to a weird fractured uh, series of, of interlocutors. Um, there are the people who have like written reviews and the big names in in games writing in popular work, and then there are all these like weird, strange academics in the background who are doing like the nature of play and ludo narrative dissonance and all that stuff. And it it's weird because you wouldn't think those would interact very much, but they definitely do. Um, and finding out where you stand on it, I I know from my own experience, and I would imagine for you, feels like insurmountable. Yeah, it's definitely to the point where I start wondering, like, is is my ignorance an asset? This is how you get desperate and you start thinking, well, <laughs> no, maybe no. the fact that I don't know anything means that I'll have a fresh that's, perspective on things. That's right. And it's still possible, but probably not. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just no, terrified that's... repeating anything that anybody else has already ever said in their life. Well, anybody's yeah, no, life. Then, and then if you do, you just go, ah, oh, I'm, I'm new here. I, I didn't know. Uh, please, please read this essay by my by my uh, noted peer. Yeah. <laughs> But you you wrote recently on you've wrote recently on a couple of things on my site um, and I I think they're they're very good actually we had talked for a while about you coming on for Persona Five but um, 
I never played Persona 5. I just played uh, SMT Nocturne instead, which is uh, JRPG enough for, for a while, I would say. Um, you, you did finally beat it, right? Uh, uh, kind of. I beat. <laughs> we're, we're you gonna, got an ending. Yes, we're going to be doing the. Um, we're going to be doing the final bits of it uh, this weekend, I believe. I'm not going. Well, it, if it happens, yes. By the time this airs, I'll have beaten it. But uh, basically, we got to the the kind of like best ending last boss, and uh, the game really ramps up the difficulty at that point. So um, Andrew, the guy I stream it with, said, "Hey, look, like." You got to you got to beef up your demons. You got to get different guys. Uh, you can't beat this boss where you're at right now. So I'm going to be I'm going to be moving to San Diego while I do that uh, for, for a little bit. While I do that, why don't you go ahead and uh, just uh, do like level up for a while? Uh, so now I have a whole new party and it should be possible to beat the game. It's only been two years. I don't know how long Persona 5 took you. I hope it's similar to two years or else I'm going to be really embarrassed. It, I don't know. Um, it feels like forever ago. I mean, I know that it's it's a long game, and it's a game that I have no business playing because <laughs> you know, a hundred hours is is literally a year, right? That's mm-hmm. that's how long it takes to play a hundred hour game, and I'm sure it took me a year to beat it. Um, I don't remember that year. <laughs> no, I don't remember no, anything no about part it. Of it. I barely remember Persona Five at all. You just um, <laughs> did. Do you blame that on your life or Persona Five? I kind of both. Yeah, I, um, I mean, Persona it's very hard for me to be able to approach games in the way that everybody else seems to approach them. Um, in that, I I can't just sit down and play a game anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am. Oh, I know that every time I play a game, especially a long game, that there is the chance that I will walk away from that game and mean to play it tomorrow and then never play it again. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and you have that point, especially like Persona 5 luckily is, you know, I actually have to lean towards skillless games at this point um, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I picked up Horizon Zero Dawn. I played maybe 10 or 15 hours of it, enough to know that I wasn't great at the game, but I was kind of getting by. And then once you like take a month off. Yeah, and 15 hours is not, it's, it's far too much to replay. Oh, well, of course, yeah. How are you? But it's that? also, like, far enough that I got somewhat good at it. And so I will never, I'll never be able to start it ever again. No. It's dead. Yeah, it's, it's done, it's done for you. Yeah, this was like, this is like my experience with Death Stranding. It's just like a game that is complicated enough that you kind of like pick things up as you go and you're just like, okay, if I had to start this over again, it would be really bad. Um, and I just, I'm lucky that I have to play it really fast for, uh, this review or else I would never, ever finish it. Like I, I know full well, I would never finish this game. Um, it would never happen. And again, the reason for it is because it's just like, just never gonna, it's like not, not in the cards to play the game consistently for however many weeks I'd need to play it for, you know, seven hours a week or whatever. Um, right. It just sounds crazy. So, yeah, it's undoable. I, I don't understand how anybody plays video games. I, and at this point, I don't understand how anybody actually does anything. Yeah. No, that's that's at all. Yeah. In life. It's silly. Like people say art. Yeah. I, <laughs> did you know some some artists have kids? It's, it's very strange. Those poor kids must have must never see their parents. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. I was promised when I had kids and I was still writing about baseball that things would be fine, you know, and they weren't. Yeah, that's a lie. It was the grand lie. Um, Actually, you know what's funny? I read a book by a guy named uh, Greg Semenza, who's a pretty pretty decent writer. He wrote about um, 
he wrote about the um, like basically he wrote about finishing up your degree and like getting a job in in academia. I mean, he wrote at a different time, so like, he wasn't like being misleading or anything. He, like he got a job at uh, at UConn after a lot of work. He was a, a scholar at uh, at Penn State under some people I knew, and he wrote a really great book about becoming an academic. But one of the things he said in it is he's like, I'm a huge Yankees fan. Um, then I knew he was evil, uh, but he said he's a huge Yankees fan, uh, but he was unable to follow the Yankees as he wanted uh, still because of his kids. And he said first, it, you know, initially because of my kids, I could only, you know, follow the game here and there. And then, um, you know, when they got a little older and it got a little harder, it was only box scores. And then once I started doing my dissertation, well, at that point it was, uh, you know, I would just read the news about them and that was about it. Um and it's like, yeah, OK, <laughs> that that actually is exactly correct. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's what all adulthood is. I mean, right. Yeah. You just slowly lose any kind of uh, ownership over your own skills, talents. Um, mm-hmm. Everything that you think you're good at, you just kind of get worse at and have less time to be good at over time until there's nothing of you left. I hope everyone who's young uh, listening to this is feeling real yeah. good about their future. You know, I know people <laughs> online like to complain about climate change a lot, but think about it this way. Maybe you won't have to go through this steep decline as much. Yeah, you, you, you will, uh, you know, you'll be feeding your kids and then you will go to bed and you'll wake up and you go to work and uh, everything will be taken care of for you. <laughs> If you, yeah, if you don't, uh, if you're sort of like, um, if you're doing more than that too, you're going to be so tired. It's going to make your mind like ache. Um, just some thirties and forties facts for you right now. Um, but one of the things, one of the things that you wrote about that I, well, so like one thing I will say about the, the kind of utility one can have when they're coming at, um, this issue from a, from like a different perspective as you are, um, I think one of the things that, that you bring to the table is that you don't come with any preconceptions about what games should and should not be, right? Like uh, your Goose Game uh, article, for instance. Um, you know, like Goose Game was the the topic of the week for a while. And for one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons was because um, uh, noted uh, uh, curmudgeon Ian Bogost uh, decided to write about Goose Game. <laughs> And in writing about Goose Game, uh, Ian Bogos kind of laid down this gauntlet where he said, yeah, look, like Goose Game is whatever, like it's it's uh, whatever it may be. It's also work and it's very bad. And and some people said, hey, Goose Game is a, a genius game and a brilliant and you should you should leave it alone. And then other people said, hey, you know, Goose Game is, you know, this, that or the other thing. And I thought your Goose Game take was actually fairly original. Um because you weren't like reading every review, you you weren't coming at it as like a typical uh, <laughs> a typical um, games reviewer. Well, I, I'm a relativist, and it's uh, it makes my interpretation of reviews pretty difficult anyway. Because I think reviews are, on the whole, almost entirely useless and generally quite harmful. Uh, yes, um, I would tend to agree and, with that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and it really comes down to, I mean, essentially, and this is something that was true in baseball as well, this, this false sense of objectivity mm-hmm. that is conferred upon everything. The, the, even the sentence, the goose game is, is itself false because it isn't any one thing. Um, <laughs> How the goose game that? is the combination of the people who made it and whoever happens to be playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so when when Ian Bogos says Goose Game is work, and it was work for him. I mean, he certainly had to write an essay about it and pay for it. So it was definitely part of his work. True. Um, it was work for me because I chose to also write about it. Um, but A, I, I don't agree with his particular assessment just because I believe that work needs to be an obligation. Uh, I think that you can't uh, combine the work that you do for yourself and the work for you do for someone else in the same category. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I can I agree with that. Um this is something I've actually been thinking about a lot. Like in playing Death Stranding and feeling like I'm sort of on the clock doing this game. Um and then thinking about games like I don't know, like Final Fantasy 14 that I play kind of for myself. And like the difference between those two is stark even though um like the actual time spent and the grind and all that is not all that different. Um, it's not like one is like eminently forgivable, forgiving and the other is not. I mean, they're very similar in that, like, you're kind of sitting around clicking buttons for a long time, watching numbers go up, but one feels like work and one doesn't. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that that's on the game, you know? Well, I mean, every game's a walking simulator with something different for walking. I mean, it's still, <laughs> it, it's still a, an experience that you're Don't choosing. Don't give away your next article that easy. <laughs> <laughs> you're still basically choosing. You're opting into this experience of saying, I'm going to play this game, and I'm going to play it this way that you've chosen to play it. Right. And, um, and in the sense, you, you are paying for it with your time and your money, and you're making that selection. Um, there's a recent uh, video that... Uh, Noah Caldwell Gervais put out about Red Dead Redemption, the Red Dead Redemption series. It's excellent. I recommend everyone watch it. Um, and he was talking about uh, the people who gave that game, especially uh, RDR2, one-star reviews. Uh, because he loved the game, absolutely loved it, um, and wanted to know why people would hate it. Um, and mostly they hated it because it wasn't the kind of game they wanted to play. Yeah. Which seems simple enough, but you know, for a game that is universally beloved, the idea that you could take a look at something that everybody else loves and say, I think this is one star, and then just not at all examine why you might feel differently than literally everyone else. Uh, it's The hubris of that is stunning. I don't think it's incorrect. <laughs> I mean, because it, for them, it really was a one-star game. It really did play a way that they did not want to play. Yeah. Because Red Dead Redemption does make you play the game a certain way. And there are there are reviews of Red Dead Redemption on like a historicist basis or like a the basis of how they handle uh uh issues of indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera, that are like far more like you know, I guess nuanced in a in a sense, uh that nuanced is probably not the right word, but far more motivated, maybe is the word. Uh, <laughs> in a in a good way that like make a little more sense or have sort of a, a, a more consistent argument than like it wasn't my cup of tea. But the, sure. I think like the, the thing about reviews and, and you talk about this in your most recent article on Metacritic and I, I think quite, quite well is that the problem with reviews is that you can't then say that one's more vi viable than the other. Like certainly I want to say, and I, I often say, yeah, like the, the actual viable thing to do here is make an argument about the game. Like if you don't like Red Dead Redemption and it's because you think it does a really bad job of, um, you know, telling the history of the American frontier, then yeah, okay, that's like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm listening, that's interesting. Um, if you don't like Red Dead Redemption and it's because like 
you think it was extremely it's got unskippable cutscenes. Yeah, right. Then like, who cares? But in yeah. the review form, those are the exact same value. Right. And and the problem isn't that the problem isn't that these people think it's a one star game. It's that they think it is a one star game. Mm. <laughs> that that's what it should be. Right. Um, and it's because there's a number. And the number is the big problem. Like, saying something that is not your cup of tea is the least interesting thing in the world. It's also true. <laughs> um, I don't want to play Red Dead Redemption 2. I cannot. I simply cannot play that game with the way my life is. It doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. I can't spend an evening where the whole... I can't play Death Stranding either because I can't decide to play a game and then just not get through the cutscene before I have to go to bed. Did you... Um, um... Are you like? Are you saying that you would rather spend time with your children than uh, than watch a, a delicately curated Hideo Kojima cutscene? Oh, Trevor, I don't get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I knew it's that. Not... Already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the kids have to be unconscious for me to decide what video game I want to play. There's not going to be an in between. There's not going to be like a selection process. <laughs> but no, like if I have that hour, uh, then I can't afford for that hour to be devoted to a cutscene. Mm-hmm. It's just, for me, personally. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. Right, sure. Um, and that's why I would not write a review based on that. <laughs> right? <laughs> it just that It's fine, it just does not need to be said. And yet we've got a system that wants people to say that, that rewards people for saying that, that, that affects everyone. Like, review scores mean something. Right. And it's because people are are allowed to use it to vote on whether the people who made the game deserve more money or deserve to make another game. Yeah, and and uh, I mean like the the question of value, as as you've brought up, and it's been like a constant uh, hobby horse of mine too. Like this question of you know what has enough, what has value, what is what is valuable, what is like, um, like why why is this game good to have or bad to buy or whatever like should you waste your time should you spend your time like all those questions boil down to did you get what you wanted out of this game as a reviewer and like do you think other people will too and that second question is just like it's like a nightmare for me to think about <laughs> like i don't i don't think anybody actually does that's the thing mm-hmm. i think people just have we we have built up a especially in games reviews more than any other type of art form, I feel like games reviews are structured. They're compartmentalized. We don't go into a movie very often and say, all right, we're going to actually physically break this review into six parts. In the first part, we're going to talk about the special effects. <laughs> In the second part, we're going to talk about the sound. But that's how so many game reviews are. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, when you do that, it's basically saying... A, all these compartments are equally important <laughs> and that we should care about them all. And we can't because some people are 40 and some people are 20. And some people need 120 hours of gameplay desperately to you know, fill the time the summer before they go off to college. Because God knows we've all had that summer where it's like, oh God, what am I you know, I came back from my freshman year and yeah. I got to go back from the sophomore year and I, all my friends moved out and I'm gonna sit here. I need to. I, I could. I could. I could read Tolstoy or yeah. what I will actually. <laughs> it's do. This is the wheel of time again. You know, like <laughs> no one should have to make that choice. Um, <laughs> but then there's us who like you know want something to be five hours, please. Yeah, exactly. And like it's. And I saw this. We can't. Oh God. 
we just can't seem to have both of those reviews exist because they both get averaged into the same number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically saying it's impossible to have them both. I saw a I saw a critique of um, I saw a critique of the uh, of the new um, Pokemon that it looks like it's probably going to be about eighteen hours, and people are like, "Ah, oh, it's so short, eighteen hours." Like, ah, oh, that means I might play it. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, so the, so the problem is that, you know, Metacritic does this to us. The, the aggregators, even the sites themselves on an individual basis, we expect a consistency between our reviews for a site. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so what, what do you do? And um, the article I wrote basically had two solutions. One was just the snarky solution and then the real solution. That's okay. And the, the snarky, snarky solution was important. to actually program a review site to weight everything based on your personal standards. I love it. Uh, which would never work, and no one would ever do. But also I could kind of see somebody trying to do that as a, a tech bro way to uh, to uh, update the industry. I liked your other disruption where it was um, you have a site basically just for reviews that are uh, uh, one year old. Yeah, the, the dad review site. <laughs> yeah. we, need a, we need a dad review site yeah. to say, all right, you have, you know, two hours this week, and you are going to play a game that's four years old, uh, as I'm still trying to finish off Witcher 3. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, you know, <laughs> your game is going to be 10 bucks. Uh, you're not going to get to play Death Stranding. You're not going to get to play Outer Worlds. You're not going to get to play all these new games everyone else is playing. But they're still being worked on. Games are flexible, and they change, and they're malleable. And so, you know, though that's the, one of the awful things about Metacritic is that every review sticks forever, even if the game itself changes. Right. And that's, it's stupid. Like, yeah. we still, Fallout New Vegas, a, a wonderful game, uh, was buggy for the first month. Oh, yeah. It's and still- if you bought it that first month, then your gaming experience was different than everybody else's. Everybody else got to play it in a fantastic game that is, you know, still somehow 88 because, you know, some reviewers got got game ending bugs yeah and your your example of prey is, is a really good example that way where like the the whole point of uh the review being like well i have to give it a 30 because it's unplayable um well now, now it's not unplayable what would you give it well i'm sorry i can't like <laughs> if only pencils had erasers right but even like even beyond the malleability of video games you also have just like art as it ages like i think it'd be interesting to have review sites like this for all types of media just to be like hey what held up because things times do change and things that are classics don't work anymore because they've been ripped off or because they're you know culturally insensitive or because they have they're problematic and some things deserve to be thrown out some things didn't deserve to be thrown out but they've been overdone and copied to the point where the original no longer has value. Like the Marx Brothers is my perfect example mm. for this. Um, you know, our generation, my generation, watched so much Bugs Bunny that by the time we watched Groucho Marx, we're like, what's this ripoff? Yeah, this is this is just bad Bugs Bunny what I'm watching. I'm like, no. Right. <laughs> and so now you, 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 it's, it's real hard to go back and watch a Marx Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it, they are great and they were legitimately classics in their time. But other things I would, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, something like uh, Hitchcock movies age better because 
we took on a lot of those things and decided those would be how modern movies would feel and look like. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's interesting just to look at how everything ages and how, you know, there are certain things, certain, especially with games, certain mechanics, uh, certain foibles that we just cannot live with anymore. Well, and it's, it's a good, um, it's a good question about cultural uh, issues too, where like you think about something like, um, I, I had, I had reason to recall, uh, crash 2005, uh, maybe my least favorite movie. Um, and <laughs> when that came out, the idea that crash was a bad movie, um, was like truly got me in a lot of trouble. Um, like I, I would tell people that and they would be like, they would be like, no, like it's actually brilliant and you must have missed it or you're a racist or whatever. And then like, I'd say six years after release, the, the cultural tide had turned on crash and everyone sort of agreed that it was not the movie that the Academy had led us to believe it was. Um, right. And luckily we went a little faster on the green book. Yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, no, we get better, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I think like, I think the thing is the, like that kind of cultural difference, right. Where it's like, Oh, um, you know, what is, is this good based on like my understanding of art still, or my understanding of what art should do is still not even, not even is this dated or is this funny in a way that I think is like cutting edge or interesting, like really like, does this do what art should do? Uh, and so we lose things like crash, but we also lose things like, um, uh, you know, some DW Griffith and stuff like that. Right. Like where it just right. like, it does not hold up for either racist reasons or, uh, reasons that the film just doesn't really stand anymore. Like I feel like, I feel like like the 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 biggest sort of hot take I have about that is um is that Eisenstein is very good but also d- doesn't totally hold up. <laughs> like if you're well, we can finally bring Disney Plus into this conversation no, you, as can, we can, were fated to do. You watch the, and talk about the Song of the South. Oh, I, how, and, I thought you were going to um, tell me that you could watch Sergey Eisenstein's movie on Disney Plus. Like, <laughs> they got Disney's not on it yet. <laughs> um, just not this week. Ah, wow. Well. Uh, but yeah, Song of the South isn't on Disney Plus, and for me personally, I think that's. Good. Yeah, I think that that while I understand people who uh, are troubled by uh, the uh, the revisionism of a nearly complete history of Disney, I think more people would unironically approach it, and it would probably do more, much more damage than it would be of a benefit to the people who were able to approach it from you know the proper standpoint. Well, and let's let's, so, let's be honest. Yeah. Like uh, this is this is true of video games too. Like uh, Disney is absolutely in control of their own revisionism regardless. Like if you think song of the South is the only thing that is being cut out of that, uh, partial history, then, um, then they've done a really good job of convincing you of what to focus on. Um, right. you know, similar, like, uh, how the, the podcast on, um, Earwolf on video games, uh, I had, I had their hosts on a while back. Um, one is, one is a buddy of mine, uh, Nick Weiger. Um, the other, uh, Heather is, is very, very nice. I don't know her very well, but she seemed great. Um, you know, two really nice people. Um, their episode this week is on Custer's revenge. And, um, I joke around a lot about Custer's revenge, but, um, I really would not want to spend that long talking about Custer's revenge. Um, (laughs) and a big reason for that is because it's a vile, horrible game. And, and they say it's a vile, horrible game, but like, it goes to your point. Like, I don't know how much we're doing by re reintroducing Custer's revenge into the history of games. Like, yeah, it existed. Yeah, it shouldn't have. Um, 
uh, I, I don't know if it really helps to have people play it. Um, well, yeah. yeah. And this comes back to curation mm-hmm. and basically being in control of how we approach games and how we talk about them. Uh, we, we shouldn't be trusting Disney or Sierra or anybody else to be like, to control what the history is. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to slap something like that just on the storefront and say, here you go, you can buy it, no judgments. <laughs> um, we should be able to be like, okay, well, these things exist, and you can, we, we have their histories here, and you can read about them. Uh, but you're not going to be able to participate in it until you get the perspective, it's, until you understand. It's like that, Jerry. Gonna, you're not going to just happen to rub, stumble across it in the wild. Right. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like... Um, uh, when I finally watched the old band Warner Brothers cartoons, it was in the context of a of a course I was taking on like race in the twentieth century in college, and it's like okay, good that I found these then, <laughs> or else you know like th- there thereby goes a, a fiad or not fiad, but there thereby goes like a weird four chan uh, phase of my life. Um, but yeah, like it's I think the other thing is like it's not. It, it, it's the problem of uh, that Jerry Lewis movie, uh, the clown. Was it the clown that cried or the clown? Oh, you know this one, right? The the one that was lost. You heard about this? No, oh, this is no, I don't know about this. Wonderful this. example. Hang on, I I have to find yeah. it. Um, I now I have to now I have to actually have like the Jerry. I kind of hate him, honestly, Jeff. He's... Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he's not great. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> I hate him. I hate the things he made. But so I... <laughs> he wrote. Well, you're gonna love this example. I got to tell you, this is called the. It's called. It's a 1972 Swedish French drama film directed by and starring Jerry Lee, Jerry Lewis, not Jerry Lee Lewis. That would be interesting. Um, it is. Uh, he plays a washed-up German circus clown named Helmut Dork during the beginning of World War II. Uh, it was famous, but now he's past his prime. He causes an accident during a show. The head clown convinces the circus owner to demote him. Uh, he commences his, pro- his issues. It's basically the Joker for a while. Uh, basically that. And then he's arrested for ranting about Hitler in the bar. He's imprisoned in a Nazi camp. Uh, he await, he awaits there. Um, he tries to maintain his status by talking about he was a famous uh, performer. Uh, he performs for Jews in the, in the camp. Um, and he's told he, uh, that's forbidden. He, he insists on performing and, uh, the, uh, they, they knock him unconscious, uh, and then he's placed in solitary confinement. And here's the place where it really gets bad. Seeing a use for him, the commandant assigns him to help load Jewish children on trains leading out of the internment camp, which pro- with the promises case will be reviewed. Um, and he basically uh, accompanies the children on a boxcar to Auschwitz uh, in like Pied Piper fashion. Um, and he, he that's that's the and in the end, he kills himself by walking into the showers. But it's it's never been released by Jerry Lewis's own fiat. Like he says, it's a horrible movie, and I never should have made it. Um, and people <sighs> want it released. Like the people are desperate to see this movie. Uh, there there have been like little bits of it released. It's always gotten like kind of like snuck out. I think there's like a full release coming. Like people really really want to see this movie. And I think at a certain point, you have to look at it and say like, listen, we have the description. <laughs> at a certain yeah. point, what more are you going to get by actually seeing this? Like, you know, sure, we all think Jerry Lewis should not have made this movie, but 
he's not absolved. We all know it exists. If we're asking for it, we know it's real. We know it's out there. Um, right. It was an intentional act. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's not good. And as a result, we should not see it. Um, and that's, that's like a weird thing, right? Where like, I feel like in film, there's a real urge to, to go check out those things that are bad, but in gaming, that badness, that sort of like true, terrible event of, of film it has just been um, subsumed to the mediocre. Like, there's a lot of mediocrity in video gaming, but nothing that's truly terrible that comes to mind. Um, yeah, you get your chiller, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that type of thing. Um, yeah, and part of it is because, um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, Congress in the 90s cracked down so hard, sure. so quickly compared to the, uh, the movie business. And, and, and Hollywood had more say in trying to fight back and compromise when it came to ratings than the games industry did. But also, you know, I think there's also just more, um, there's more layers <laughs> between when something is thought up and when something is made generally <laughs> that allow for somebody to stop and be like, guys, really? We, got, we, we can't do this. And, and the other thing is that, that for games, um, you have two levels of badness. And there's you know, the bad idea, the bad story, the bad, un, you know, unwise decisions. Mm -hmm. And then you have, like, unplayable games, right? right? You have games that mechanically are so bad. Uh, and generally, if one's going to be bad, usually the other one, that's not like you have, it's very rare that you have an incredibly polished, uh, incredibly mechanically sound game that hasn't at least been sanded down to a standard Thing, except, of course, as I'm sure John Bernhardt is screaming at his microphone right now, with white phosphorus. <laughs> and with, you know, and there are certain things that we've accepted because they've been slowly ebbing away at our sense of, of ethics and morality for, for decades and centuries, and, you know, those things get through. But it's never all at once. It's never something surprising. It's always the mundane evil mm -hmm. that slows past us. Yeah. So uh, I'm interested in what you had to say about the uh, the kind of like folding in of just like banal evil into the games or banal uh, I'm trying to think of a good word for this something that's unacceptable or or bad quality or you know, something that doesn't work but something that we're just so accustomed to right like for the instance like you said john was probably yelling about uh white phosphorus in uh in in the new uh modern warfare like or black ops or whatever it is at this point um that they just put out the you know the use of that as a sort of like signifier of american war crimes just casually tossed in right <laughs> but in some ways I wonder how much that is about games and how much that is about just sort of like the cult of the blockbuster. Cause I mean, we also have Jack Ryan telling us that the threat of a nuclear Venezuela is going to be a big issue. Um, and without any irony at all. So like it's, it's, I mean, how much is this an issue of video games? How much is this an issue of just like pop culture in general? And is that even like a, a choice one has to make? Well, I, I think it's both. Um, as far as Jack Ryan goes and the example of the state of pop culture, um, I really think that the big problem is the Internet. Mm. And as, a, as, you know, being of my age, I'm of the, the uh, Gen X generation, uh, the, the ones nobody actually cares about, rightfully so. <laughs> um, 
we, you know, our generation is the ones that grew up uh, without the internet and then had it as adults. And uh, I don't think we have done a very good job culturally of fully grasping what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but especially, you know, yes, the, the magical devices that let us know anything in the world uh, in three seconds, that there's part of that. But there's also just the part of the fracturing of culture um, and how nobody talks about Jack Ryan because not that many people actually watch it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, how, how, who, who maybe relatively. Well, it, there there are so many things. There there are so many different ways to get entertainment. We have lost uh, the ability for our mainstream culture to be a talking point, and uh, I think it's actually why there has been uh, the the swelling of popularity in sports is not so much that people like sports more than they used to, but it's one of the few things that we can all agree that we're all actually watching and talking about at the same time. <laughs> yeah, very fair. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why Death Stranding has gotten such popularity. It's not because anybody really loves it or that they really, I mean, I'm sure there are people who really love it, but it's not, it's more that we have all agreed to play it. Yeah, right. And we've all agreed to talk about it. And we all agree this is a thing that we may as well sit around uh, it is the sports bar game. It's a bit like um, what Sekiro was when Sekiro came out, where everyone was like, oh, have you gotten to the part with the monkeys yet, with the guns? And like that, just like references, 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 and that kind of drifted yeah. away, as would like, I don't know, like a mid-season game between the Eagles and the Browns or something like that, where it's like, oh, I really care about this game like more than anything in my life outside of my family for this three-hour period. And yeah, then, until the moment it's done. Yeah, and then <laughs> I, I, please do not tell me anything about this game ever again. I don't care. Yeah, so um, I think that's right. And, and that this is kind of unfortunate in the sense that because we don't have it as a, a point of reference for dialogue anymore, we've lost its ability to have any kind of uh, social impact. Mm. You know, the idea of having um, cultural awareness is brought to us by television or by movies, is it's much rarer now. And also the ones that can often choose not to do it, like with Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having a Jefferson's or, you know, something on the family where half the point of the show was to make you see, embrace something that you wouldn't have uh, and then talk to somebody about yeah. it. Uh, we don't have that now. And so Jack Ryan will go on and no one will notice because the people watching it will watch it and the people who aren't watching it won't. And there's nothing to talk about. Right. And, and this is actually something that came up for me with um, when I was teaching uh, and some, I don't, it don't, doesn't come up now only because I won't bring it up anymore. I've, I've learned my lesson. But like I've tried to make television references to use as jumping off points into analogies for difficult literature or even for like writing devices. And no one watches the same shows as I do or anyone does. Like no one has even even stuff you'd expect to be sort of like a, a, a similar thing. Like obviously, OK, kids aren't watching Seinfeld. It's it's old to them. Fine. Uh, well, they weren't watching Breaking Bad in 2010 either. Like it's like, OK, so like what are you watching? What are, And, you know, it's just something I'm not. Um, and that sort of realm of reference, the as you say, like the social mode of uh, media is kind of just gone. Right. And, and eventually it becomes, um, you know, a half a fish in the dirt and you get people who make good place references specifically for other people who get good place references. Yeah. <laughs> and those last for a year. Yes, right. And already people have stopped making good place references. Um, it's, you know, 
it's difficult because we haven't really gotten anything to replace that, I feel like. Um, the other problem is, uh, is specific to games, and I think it's because of this individual trait that games have that other forms of art don't, and that is the interactivity of right. them. Um, and the mechanics. And so there's white, well, there's white phosphorus, not because somebody's like, I'm going to make a game so that I can have white phosphorus. I don't think that that was the original motivation. They're like, I have a gameplay mechanic I would like to do, and I want, this is the best way for me to go about making that mechanic take place in this right. game. Um, and it, they shouldn't. <laughs> right. But, I, but uh, that's, that was the solution. And I think that that's so much game design is is having a game mechanic that you need and then finding a solution for it. And so many of those times, you know, it becomes so irrational, so disconnected from real life that it does chip away at the artistry to be like, well, you can just loot corpses of people in the street, you know, and and, and everyone will expect you to. Right. Yeah. All these things that we've been doing for 20 years in video games now are part of video games so much that when a game doesn't let you do them when it's realistic it feels unrealistic yeah uh, again going back to that red red redemption review uh, he noted that people were angry that you couldn't just loot everybody all the time that there's a negative repercussion to being seen picking stuff off a dead body uh, and how that angered people uh, because the reality of how to play a video game was more important than the reality of the setting or the culture, or any kind of message the game tried to convey. It's similar with um, with the recent re-release of uh, not re-release, but a remastering slash sequel slash whatever of um, of Pathologic Two, which is fantastic, but um, initially got like blasted for being way too hard. And one of the reasons it was said that it was way too hard was because like you were in this plague land and you were, you're basically set up as a murderer and, and as a scapegoat for everything that was happening in this strange world you knew nothing about. And it's very difficult to get out of that. Like it's very difficult to make, you know, any sort of progress in a, in a world where everyone thinks that you are uh, not only a killer, but a plague bringer. Um, and you know what that, yeah, it's just true. <laughs> it's, it's like yeah. Yeah, good luck good luck walking through this town and oh you accidentally killed someone uh when they were trying to attack you uh bad news uh you don't just get to like run around until your star meter goes down uh you're in big trouble now so like well yeah and and i the part of the problem is that games are supposed to be fun yeah, yeah all right. um which art is generally not <laughs> the whole point of art is that it's supposed to make you think and generally having fun means not necessarily thinking, or that the things that draw you out, the, the you know, that pull you out of the immersion, uh, are things that make you less fun and make it less fun and make you more likely to actually reflect. Mm. They are at cross purposes with each other in yeah. so many ways. Um, and then, like with pathologic too, I think you know, even this is not just true. Of like, I'm not saying that just oh, people are so shallow. It is. It is very difficult for all of us to deal with things once we've gotten used to the mechanics to jump into the pool after the hot tub of, say, 30 years of JRPGs that tell us that, well, as we play the game, it'll get easier because we'll get better. or And that you can literally do every side quest and that everything can be accomplished and that you will be the hero. <laughs> um, and for a game that's like, no, you're going to lose and you got to figure out which way you want to lose. Yeah, it's... Or, you're 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 gonna have eight people, and you can you know the, the trolley problem of you can you can accomplish two of the things 
that this world sets out for you. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a game that uh, my friend uh, Aaron uh, one, wants me to play, and, and and she got it for me, and I I have not gotten to it yet. In part because it it's called We Know the Devil, um, and it's a it's a visual novel of sorts, pretty short apparently. Uh, so it's it should be right at my alley, and it is. But what the the tagline for it is uh, when there are three friends, um, one is always left out. Um, and like basically, you play as these three girls at a at a, a basically a camp. It's pseudo horror, uh, pseudo not. And and like there's you know there's some queer romance in it. There's some there's a friendship themes. It's you know the whole gamut of stuff you'd want in a game. And like the the mechanic that scares me the most is like oh I got to make a choice. Like I really I had I, I have to make someone feel bad. Like I don't I don't know if I want to do that. Like I want to make a, yeah, a choice in a video it, game. Like, huh, that sounds horrible. Yeah, a real choice and not just renegade or yeah, you know right, exactly. and, and not just like how what tone of voice do I want my voice actor to be using? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, the, it, I feel the same exact way and I think it's reasonable especially, you know, as you get older and you think, "Okay, well I have a limited amount of time. I I don't want to retry and restart. I don't want to have to save scum. I don't want to have to replay anything. Uh, And, and to be thrown into this situation where honestly, most games shouldn't let you save. Yeah. (laughs) And absolutely. And a good story should not only not let you save, but it should uninstall the moment you beat the game the first time. There's a great element of, um, uh, Toby Fox's undertale that have you, have you played undertale? I I started there, it. There you go. Uh, well, so one of the things in Undertale, as as you know, um, but others may not if they haven't played it, is that you can you can do the whole thing non lethal. Um, like you can you can just like not kill anyone in the entire game. And in fact, that's kind of how the game wants you to go. Um, I think the game assumes that you're going to go half and half. Like at some point in the game, you'll probably kill something and then realize you don't have to kill anything. Um, but there's also a, a route that's exceedingly difficult to do. And uh, it's called Genocide Route, and it's, you kill everything. Um, and it, if you beat the game, uh, it marks your file. It marks like not just your file, but the game itself. I suppose you could uninstall and reinstall it. I can't imagine there's any way that it could it could save as far as that goes. But maybe there is. But it marks your game, not just your file, with a mark that you've completed that. Like you, you get like specific dialogue cues that say like the game knows that you've done this horrible thing. Um, and I love that. I love, I love the idea of marking you and saying like, yeah, I'm sorry. You can only get, you can't do the pacifist mode after this. You can only get a sort of like, um, pseudo pacifist mode. We know that we know that what your original choice was. Yeah, it's perfect. It's also so terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want games to do that. I, I, it, it's, it's a difficult relationship because I, I don't like horror movies. I do not want to voluntarily go into an experience. It's like, I'm going to have dread, and I'm going to dislike this experience, and then hopefully later I will have retrospective enjoyment. <laughs> I have a very difficult time. Even being able to do the, the calculus of saying this will be a net benefit in the end, I can't, yeah. I, I don't want to sign up for that first part. Right. Exercise, too, I suppose. Oh, yeah, well, no, don't get started. Part. Wasted time. I, 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 so, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> the paralysis of choice and the, and the idea that, uh, you know, we don't. We don't. Ca- we don't always get to do things that are nice, that are fun, that are that level us up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we, we. I think there needs to be. I think there's starting to be, but I think there just needs to be a, a cultural shift in that what we think games are for. 
Well, and, you know, okay. we there was the, the the long tired conversation about what games are art. The the better question is whether we ever wanted them to be. Yeah, and I think like you know the 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 question of wanting something that always gives you a progression, always leveling up everything. I mean, yes, some games are pushing back against this, but the culture at, at large is basically telling us that no, like you can always level up, and in fact, like we'll give you apps that instead of like a scheduling app, it's an app where like you know, put that you're going to walk. And if you do it, uh, you'll get experience points in this, like gamer apps for exercise or whatever. Like it's the, the culture really does encourage us to constantly be, you know, asking for this kind of leveling up um, and telling us that it always can be this way. And we can always get sort of like little uh, endorphin rushes anytime we do any task. Um, and I think, you know, it's a very old person thing to say, but, like, the idea of getting an endorphin rush every time you do anything is diametrically opposed to good art. Well, yeah, especially especially for as you get older. Uh, God knows when I was in my 20s, uh, I wanted to uh, get better at everything mm. all the time. I wanted to be in constant self-improvement, and I was going to read, and I was going to learn. I was going to read the dictionary. I was going to learn all these new words. You're going to read the dictionary? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? You just go through and, and find the new words, work them in. Um <laughs> I don't think I actually ever do it. Um, I don't know. The thing I, is, I, I, I don't think so because I don't remember anything from my early 20s <laughs> because it's so long ago. And and you reach a point in your mid-30s, especially once you have kids, where it's like that that sense of constant progression that games promise, that the world promises, is a complete lie. Um, you, you are treading water hard from 30 on. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely correct. Physically... Mentally, like once you start getting four or five hours of sleep a night, you're you're not. I'm not smarter than I was five years ago. I'm not wiser. How how I've, could you? You know, I read Aristotle at some point. I, I wrote down that I read it. I, I don't even know. Not only do I not remember the, the Aristotle, I don't even remember which book. Remember, he like he, he's the guy who loves all the uh, all the elements, right? Yeah. yeah. Sure. He also loves publishing his notes and calling them books. Um, I mean. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, so the idea that things are getting better, that we can improve all the time, you know, it's it's so false. And it's it's damaging even to say that this is something that is attainable. Yeah. Um, when the rest of the world is just like, maybe I will, you know, slow down my my demise and my fall from the, the platonic form of myself when I was 27. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> it took us this long to get there. But I, know, I mean, I, yeah, I would have gotten there if you didn't. But, the, you know, I, I am curious, like, what do you think? I mean, is there is there any alternative to that sort of like and, I, and you could say no. But like, is there any alternative to that sort of like depressing fall where whereby you end up with like this this version of yourself that is uh, increasingly more disappointing? I mean, we, we keep talking about like art and games and media and particularly in terms of disappointment i think more and more in this episode where like we're saying you know i wish they did this or they should do this but do do this instead um especially in comparison to art like is there a way to sort of make ourselves less disappointing in in that regard so i think the solution which coincides hopefully with with the message from the essay itself is the important thing is to regain control of how we talk about art. Mm. We, have, we have kind of lost the ability, not only is the art, not only is the profit, I mean, money, the, the connection between money and art has always been a problem. Yeah, sure. 
you know, for 2,500 years. But now we're losing even the connection between how to feel about the art and the art itself. Yeah, and, and the, and the, the review sites and, and the way, oh, no, sorry. No, please. Uh, that we don't have any way of saying, you know, communicating with each other how we feel or what to take away or how to learn from any of this. And I think that that's the, the crucial first step is for us to rebuild a culture for us to be able to take things away from this. And then, as far as the answer to what to do as we crumble, um, <laughs> the best thing to do is to, you know, like, bail out as much of our wisdom onto the next generation as possible. Mm. Like, you know, actually teach people things, mentor. Um, and in order to do that, you have to have a way of communicating and sharing your values with them in a way that isn't just, like, the systematic way in which information is provided. Um, well, it's good that there are places like Deadspin where people can uh, become editors. Yeah, see, right. where we, yeah. we can be authentic. Yeah, no, that's good. And, uh, <laughs> um, man, uh, no, I agree with you, though. And I think, like, I think one of the, one of the big problems with... Um, with what you, with like the 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 framework you just brought up with is like we don't necessarily have uh, we don't we don't feel empowered to talk about art or know about art or think about art the way we were in the past. Like I think the big thing about that is we're not actually even willing to say that art and money have some sort of like different ends. And the like, whereas before we would be you know we, we would not only be happy to say it, but we would feel like it was a necessary thing to say. Now it's like if you say that you are somehow like maybe you're being a Martin Scorsese about it or maybe like you're, right. you know, you, you aren't letting people enjoy what they love or, or whatever. Like this is this has been the absolute like um, language of the last couple of weeks, like of, you know, well, who cares if what I like isn't artistically valid? Like it made a lot of money and uh, made people happy. So it's good. Um, and like, again, it goes back to our initial point of it, you know, taste as such as it is. Like, do you like something? Do you not like something? Is like a truly uninteresting thing. Uh, but people feel very, very defensive of that. The the act of talking about art is art. Mm. The act of processing and being creative and how you assess and how you feel about a thing is as creative. I mean, people have been trying to sabotage the critic for forever, but critics still create something of value. I really thought you meant the the cartoon. I was like, that's a yeah, that's I know, perfect, I know. Perfect show. Yeah. How could they sabotage it? <laughs> um, it's, I'm sure it's fine. I watched it. Oh, it's it, it holds up. It's quite. Um, yeah, it's not on Disney Plus though, so oh, I can't. Excuse me, uh, sorry. <laughs> The Simpsons are on there, but not the critic. That's uh, weird. Mm. It's next week when Disney buys it. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I lost my this. No, but people have been trying to sabotage criti the critic forever, you said. Yeah, and, and I, I think that, um, no, I needed to go further back than that. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I, we still can talk about this. I, you talked about how it's... You know, hard to talk about how money and art aren't on the same, they don't resonate, let alone the fact that they are actually, I believe, an antithetical to each mm -hmm. other, right? right. <laughs> that art is the opposite of money. Yeah. Um, and the problem is that, you know, especially with Deadspin, we've seen how damaging it is when those things are completely disconnected. Um, and the, the real solution is for us to not give money to the third party that ruins everything. It is to give David Roth his money directly. 
That's probably um, correct. And the problem is, of course, that it's too late because no, we don't have any money anymore. Well, yes. And so we are stuck trying to make it through Patreon because we do still have to eat. Yeah, and Patreon just basically um, becomes this version of the patronage system that is um, has no master patron at the top, which is to say, like, you know, whether or not you're thinking about a Borduzian system of um, restricted markets, which I've talked about on the podcast before, or you know, like this version of patronage where you have one person who's exceedingly rich and wants to give you all of their money because they think this one thing you did is really cool. Like the, the, the similarity between those two things is you don't have to think about audience appeal. You, you know, your audience and you know what appeals to them because your audience is like one person. Um, and you don't have to ask yourself like, Oh, what's good about my art. You just say like, okay, I trust my art. Um, I trust that I, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm arguing. I know what I'm attempting. And you know, like, uh, King King uh, Ferdinand seems to like it just fine. So uh, I guess we're good on rent for a while. Um, like that, that is not there anymore. <laughs> well, no, because we have a meritocracy instead, sure. right? Sure. Yeah. No, that's and right. It works perfectly. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that we have a meritocracy, and it's it's all working out. And that goes again goes back to curation because we need the curation not to necessarily actually create the meritocracy that does not exist, but at least destroy the false sense of meritocracy that we're all told is running everything that decides what even shows up on Metacritic, right. let alone what gets the high scores on it. What's worth considering? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, there are so many systems in place that we don't have to think about uh, that decide what's of value that we don't even get to, get to decide. We don't have control over it anymore. Yeah, and that's the that's the the ultimate sort of promise and threat of the algorithm, which is that you know you right. don't understand what this is, but it's going to make some decisions for you, which sounds equally terrifying and appealing. You don't have to question it. You don't have to worry about it. It is what it is, but it, that's a problem too. Well, Patrick, um, any last words? Anything that you we, you feel we've left unsaid? No, I, I encourage you guys all to uh, buy the 2017 Baseball oh. Prospectus Annual at your thrift store of choice. Uh, Trevor's essay on the Kansas City Royals is uh, very thank good. Thank you, thank you. Um, well, you wrote you wrote in the last one on the Royals, didn't you? I, I'm the one a, the upcoming annual. I will have written the comments for the Kansas City Royals. The Royals is after, where they put all uh, the best writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the aforementioned David Roth is writing yeah, the essay. They just put uh, all the writers to which my comments will feel like a very vestigial. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I really like. I really but like that's right. ed- editorials uh, uh, choice to just take the writers who uh, have not written anything like seriously analytical about baseball ever, and just like just have them write about the Royals. <laughs> but usually, my specialty, you know, this is like annual number five. Yeah, I've been on a lot of uh, And generally, the plan is for me to take the worst mm-hmm. team with the oldest players, so that I can make fun of them. And uh, this year was a challenge because the Royals are they're bad. Yeah. But they're also bad, and they're all twenty-five, and it seems it seems pretty cool. It's uh, to shit on these poor yeah. players who are just you it's, know trying their best. Not good players. It's like a yeah, yeah. two thousand uh, whatever Tigers team. That really really bad one. Um, yeah, yeah, those uh, poor bastards. Two thousand three. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, come on again, please. I I want to. It would be great to have you on uh, more frequently to talk about criticism and stuff. This has been wonderful. I'll try to write things for us to have to oh, talk excellent. about. That's perfect. All right. Well, um, thanks for being on. And uh, go follow Patrick at uh, Yukubud, 
you do it. I, it's, it's it's Dubuque backwards, but I can never get it. Yeah, it's Dubuque backwards. Uquebit is Uquebit? how I say it. Okay. Yeah. I, you can call it, you know. I like Uquebit better, actually. <laughs> Yukubud. Yeah, it rolls yeah, off it the does. tongue. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, no. it's so natural. I'm surprised there aren't like five corporations already called Uquebit Corp. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, uh, definitely, definitely go follow him there. And um, I, I know you've, you've sworn off writing except at, at No Cartridge for now, but I can't imagine you will... Uh, you won't get scooped up eventually because it's, you know, your writing is so good and always seems like the best places have you. Uh, but now they they don't exist anymore. So I suppose maybe I'm yeah, right. The, the best place does, Trevor. Oh. It's yours. Ah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Patrick. And uh, please come back again. All right. Take, take care, Trevor.